0: It's a wonderful time of the year. You know that even a lost and dark world marks this year with good music. Uh, there's something musical about the Christmas season. Well, we've, we've had quite a journey over the last uh, four weeks, three weeks, and here we are at week four. Most people have a birthmark, birthmarks that are specific to them. I have one that is described as a port wine stain. It's on the left side of my neck. It goes up and down just a little bit. It's always a fun moment when I am beside of a small child for the first time who walks up beside of me and notices it and with a little tinge of horror looks and says, what happened to your face? Um, Like in them, them was fighting words in middle school, but I'm over it now. Um, And I go, uh, what? I did have fun one time at at Duke University Medical Center. This is not in the notes, by the way. But when I was there for one of my cancer checkups uh, with related to the treatment we were gonna have done, of course, what I had was a metastasized uh, melanoma in my lymph nodes to the lower part of my right abdomen. And this uh, intern walked in, Duke's a teaching hospital. And this, this poor guy came in and I was in a great mood, moderately caffeinated ready to have a little fun, and the guy walks in and says, so uh, how are we doing, and he he did like this, this side of my neck, said, is this, is this uh, your birthmark, and I was like, what, what is what, I went in the mirror, I was like, what is that, he's like, um, sir, sir, I said, I'm just messing with you, it's my birthmark, he bent over the table like this, (laughs) and uh, another intern was assigned, it was a, it was a fun moment, Everybody has a mark. Most people have a birthmark of some kind, a a mole, a a beauty mark, we call it now, right, to be so apropos. Uh, Some people have them, uh, other kinds of unique identifiers on our bodies. Designers are known by their trademarks. Sometimes designers have such a trademark, you don't need to see the label. Some of you fashion-eyed folk can spot a designer just by the way something looks God, likewise, has put a very clear mark on those of us who are his children, a mark by which those of us who have been born again by the Spirit ought to be known. Dr. Tony Evans suggests that the love of God is the birthmark of the Christian, that we ought to be known by that way. Without the birthmark of love, how will other people know whose we are? The love that Jesus embodied in our world is indeed a fearless love. It's not a reckless love. Reckless love means without care and with total abandon. No, it's a fearless love. Besides lacking fear, the love of Jesus defies and completely overcomes fear. Today, as we continue our journey through Advent, through all of these characters and people that are on display in the Christmas story. We are focusing on the love that Jesus brought into our world and subsequently into our lives. If we look at this cast of Christmas, over the past three weeks we've journeyed through the nativity story with a couple of individuals at a time, but this morning I'd like to look at all the players in the biblical account with one thread, and you're like, wait, I thought there was a children's program. We will never get out. Don't worry. We're just going to touch them, okay? I just wanted to notice an incredible variety of people across all these walks of life and the thread that unites them. Let me put a couple on the screen for you and go back through some of our time together. Let's start with Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. If we walk through the story in order, this is where we start. These two couples, Old and young, the prophets and the covenants of Israel's past represented in one couple, and the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah and the new spiritual future represented in the other. The separation and death of the past, and the restoration and life now present. Quite a contrast. These two, well-established and seasoned in wisdom and brand new couples starting out in life. What about the shepherds and the angels? That's who we'd meet next, the collision of heaven and earth, the physical and the spiritual. As they head to the stable, there are animals as well as humans, the beings of creation, If we follow Matthew's account, next we would encounter the Magi. These were mysterious visitors from the east. We're not entirely sure, um, but we do know that they had followed a star a long distance to worship the promised Messiah. We don't know exactly where they came from, and we don't know exactly what they were. We do know this, whether they were astrologers or some kind of rulers, they were in fact noble and wealthy men and leaders. They were esteemed, and they were the esteemed opposite of the shepherds, the lowly shepherds. You couldn't find a greater divide socioeconomically than the magi and the shepherds. But more importantly than the socioeconomic status, watch this, they were Gentiles, not Jews. And their inclusion in Jesus' birth story echoes the radical idea that Jesus has not just come for his own, the Jews, he has come to, for the Jews and the Gentiles, that one day a people from every tribe and tongue and nation would stand before his throne saying, He is king to the glory. Of the father. Instead of the spiritual elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the day, these travelers of a different ethnicity were willing to humble themselves to worship the baby of a poor, unassuming couple in the countryside. Now, this motley cla- uh, cast of characters that our Heavenly Father sovereignly ordained to be a part of this Christmas narrative is far from the expectations that any of us in this room would have imagined, even in our woke state. (laughs) And probably even farther from the expectations of the people of that time that breathed within that culture its divisions. To us, it seems like a ragtag bunch, but to them, it was downright blasphemous to suggest their Messiah would be mixed up with all these common folk. Could Jesus have united any more divisions of the full spectrum of humanity by simply being born? I I don't think he could have done better. We've got the old, the young, the experienced, the just starting out, the outcast, the everyman, the divine, the earthy, the earthly, the Jew, the Gentile. He's pretty much covered all the extremes, and in doing so, he's revealed several things about his love that are worth noting today. I hope you'll take notes this morning on the back of the handout you got coming in, or you can do it right in the app if you're following along. The first note to write down... Christ is love embodied. Christ is love embodied. We read it in our text. If you've got your Bibles and want to turn back to 1 John 4 where we read, I'm not going to read it all again. We'll have some of it on the screen for you as I'm working through the notes. But 1 John 4, uh, 7 through 16 Christ is love embodied. Spoiler alert to all you, uh, all the macho dudes out there, I am going to talk a lot about love this morning, but it's not the uh, emotion, it's not a glandular reaction that I'm describing here, but it is action, selfless action, which is what love is. The Bible talks about love in many places. The Bible says that God is love. We just read that in First John four. Do you see it there in the text? It says that uh, God loves us and look at verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, comma, because God is love. Love is not God, but God is love from creation. God made people and shared time with them in the garden as companions. And as children, what love. When sin entered the world, not as some mysterious force, but because of the open rebellion of man and woman against this holy God, death and destruction and brokenness and separation, begin to, let's just say lightly, complicate this close companionship, even break it off with God. God continued to work out his love and covenant with humans. What love? Through generations and generations, he worked his plans through a promised Messiah to make a way to restore relationships to humanity. He sent prophets and he sent folks to call Israel back to a living relationship with God. What love. And Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, the only way to come back to the Father. He is the described groom for the bride, the church. What love. This relationship with God that he brings us is in itself, a relationship of love. It's a reunion, a rediscovery, or even discovery, of what true love really is. John writes about it beautifully here in 1 John 4. You see it right here in the Bible playing out. The Bible says God is love, he personifies love. If you're glancing through that text there, you'll notice love is his nature. He's shown it to us by sending His Son. It was in the Advent reading this morning from Psalm 117. When we come to Jesus, when we turn from our rebellion against Him and give Him our lives, we are restored to love, We're fulfilled in love. We live in him and he lives in us. We count on God's love. It's dependable. He won't let us down. God's love fills us and fuels us and it calls us and enables us to love each other. Look at these social divides that were there. I mentioned early on the only thing that could have united them was the love of God represented in a baby in a manger. Christ embodies love. Right there in verse 7, it says, we love one another for love is from God. That takes us right to our second point this morning. Love defines and propels us. God's love defines and propels us. Your verse there is in John 13, 34 through 35. Love as action was on display in that Bethlehem manger when Christ was born. And it would come around full circle toward the end of Christ's ministry when he got the disciples together for the final Passover meal that they would have together. Seated in that upper room, around that table, breaking bread together, feasting on this meal. Jesus would say to his disciples, Oh, listen friends, by this shall all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not that your theology is so robust that you can be awakened at 3 a.m. in the morning to win an argument. Not that your doctrines are so sound that nobody questions if you've stepped to the left or to the right. Those things are of paramount importance, sure. But when Jesus later would deal with Peter, And Peter was saying, I I want to serve you. Jesus would come back. Peter's trying to determine, is he qualified to walk with God anymore? Is he qualified to lead anything that's going to be worth anything? And the main qualification that Jesus bears down on is, do you love me? Love matters, church. We're to be known by this love. It's what defines us. It marks us. It's our birthmark of the second birth it characterizes us at least it should we've got to admit that churches haven't always done so great a job at this we as the church body don't always do a great job of this it's very easy for us to point the finger at some pretty big wrongs right by the church that have been done throughout history well we live in a culture that loves to point at the wrongs the church has done throughout history. This critical, theory, power-driven, non-biblical worldview constantly points the finger at the failings of the church in history. That's not what I'm talking about here. Sideline, you all better keep your Bibles open when you get schooled by some young person on theory this day and age. We can all possibly and probably think in this room of public Christians and churches in our time that make us cringe with anger or embarrassment at their rigid, unloving actions. If I pass the mic around, if any of y'all been in church for a minute, not Grace Covenant, of course, (laughs) but other places, right? We can talk about where something clearly looked unloving. Before we get all caught up, though, in pointing the finger or preparing a worldview apologetic or theoretical argument or big picture stuff or loaded for bear to bring down those people, let's take a look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word. None of us is perfect. As individuals or as a collective church, none of us is perfect. And each of us can probably know certainly find a way in our current cultural madness to allow God's love to throw through us instead of mirroring what culture is spitting at us. Tis the season, right? Christ didn't come to seek and to save one subgroup of people. He came to seek and to save the whole human race, lost and undone, and all in open rebellion, like sheep without a shepherd. Last week in our Bible studies, the Gospel Project writers captured how this love defines and propels us so well. I'm going to say a few words from them, and then I've got a slide. I, I reworded one of the things they said to, to fit our text this morning. Listen to their writing, and then I'll, I'll put this slide up. A biblical theology, a biblical theology, you want to be theologically sound, a biblical theology is about love, (laughs) love of God and love of neighbor, not a love for mere knowledge that puffs up and inflates the ego. No, if we know God rightly, we will love him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if we love our neighbors, watch this, we will share the gospel of Jesus with them that they too may repent, believe, know God rightly through Jesus Christ and love Him. Here's the statement. As God's people, we are propelled and empowered by the Spirit to call others to repentance and faith, pointing them to Jesus, the true source of hope, peace, joy, and love, rather than to self or to the temptations of this world. Love marks us, but not lip service love. If Christ was our example and he perfectly embodied love and gave himself for the church, if the Bible clearly shows us that his love ought to define and propel us, then here's where the rubber meets the road for us. This holiday season and every day then this kind of love ought to empower us to cross the borders. You know, those borders that we've put up in our lives, or wherever those people are, and we're over here. The us and them borders, the walls that we've erected. Now, maybe some others have erected. What a day we're living in. <laughs> a loaded statement, right? But doesn't it feel like our culture and our nation and our world, our news outlets, even our social media friends and enemies seem to, every week, multiply the ways to divide us? Every week there seems to be some new, oh, you're one of those people out there. The us versus them vitriol has reached a fevered pitch, but the history of the human race has been littered with such division. There have always been the weak and the powerful. There have always been the haves and the have-nots. There have always been wars with the plundered and the oppressors. I need to remind you that as cute as our children's Christmas plays are, it was into a very hostile and broken world that Jesus came. Jesus, this gift from heaven, too wonderful for words, this radical lover of your soul and my soul would cut through the anger and the bitterness and the loneliness. He would cut through all of that, that culture of death, the lies of the enemy, the culture of victimization, he cuts through that with the machete of his love, walking in the opposite direction of culture, an enigma to the politically driven on both sides of the aisle and constantly flips the script with passages like this where he says in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What? Love your enemies? Okay, I love you. (laughs) I don't think that's what he meant. And I don't think he meant just to post a status and hit enter. Christ's love manifests in action. Love your enemies. He didn't just tear down walls and cross divides at his birth with all of those polar extremes. No, he constantly reached across the social chasms of the day of separation and exclusion. He befriended the hated tax collectors, even asked one to be one of the 12. That's crazy stuff. He finds himself in the company of prostitutes, of well-known sinners, calling them to repentance and new life. He spoke with a Samaritan woman at the well, which broke about at least two, probably a dozen socially acceptable taboos there. Jews didn't associate with Samaritans, of course, and Jewish men especially didn't talk with women like this in public. But in one of the, I guess, the grandest displays of this, where he's showing love and action to push back against all the cultural nonsense, shows up in Luke 10 where he gives the story, the parable of the good Samaritan. Look at what it says. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, a chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. I know you know the account, but I want to read through it quickly. So, likewise, a Levite, when he passed by the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him into an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, I know this account has all of the feels for us today, a failure of organized religion, a failure of the institution and success of the underdog. Boy, that's really kind of, that sounds like a sitcom almost. But this would have been a lightning rod for his Jewish listeners. Remember, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They thought they were a half-breed. They thought they were religiously inferior, that they worshipped wrong, and it it really stemmed back to when there was a divided kingdom and there was intermarrying. It goes way back, deep-seated hatred. But Jesus isn't illustrating any uh, forgive me critical theory here he's not celebrating somebody's societal identity as superior or inferior he, he's not hunting for intersectionality to bolster his position jesus is holding up an example of love in action which is the only kind of love that means anything it, if after I said I do to my wife, as we were walking up to the aisle, I may have given this illustration before, and about to exchange the rings, and I said, look, I'm about to put this ring on your finger, but you need to know, after I do that, I need my space, I got to be about me, so I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do, roll how I want to roll, be with who I want to be with, but you know what, I love you, she'd be like, I, no, that's not what love is, and I think I'd get an amen from both sides of the aisle this morning. That's not what love is. Love lays down its life. Love sacrifices, Love does. Not only did Jesus cross socioeconomic and ethno-linguistic and spiritual divides, he's teaching his disciples that this should be the natural response of followers of Jesus. First John 4:18 and 19. If we read on past our. Preliminary text this morning, the Bible says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. The love of Jesus calls us and enables us, the church, to cross the borders, to climb the walls, to tear down the barriers, to reach above the disagreements. The fear that is driven out by love is the fear within ourselves. Love overcomes the fear of the other person who may not look like us or sound like us or share the same perspective or experience as us. Love enables us to cross the great divide. What, what's the great divide? Where, where do you start today? Where do you start today? Well, for some of you, it may be in your own family. Let's go there. You may need to cross some lines that have been drawn. Maybe they were lines 20 years ago, but now they've turned into walls that need to be scaled or torn down. Maybe it's in your home or your neighborhood or your workplace or your community. It's not just as Christmas, but at all times, Jesus calls us together into his loving presence and invites us to make room for all, whether they deserve it or not. That's where it might start. What does it actually look like? Well, this, there's always humility in love, a willingness to put someone else above ourselves. Love may mean you take the first step, the first gesture. Sometimes love means being able to listen without being so defensive. It's always being willing to choose to see someone else, not as other, but as, watch this, see others as this, a fellow image bearer, equally in need of a Savior equally with the potential to be welcomed into the presence of God and equally drawn into and propelled out of his miraculous, divine, all-consuming love. This is God's love. It's the gift of Christmas. It's the heart of hope and peace and joy. This Christmas, as you rediscover the overwhelming, all-encompassing, all-inviting love of God, I pray that we'll also display that love as we flip the script on this toxic culture that we live in. I'd love for it to be reported as it has been already. Man, those Grace Covenant folks, those are some of the most loving folks I've ever encountered. Remain seated. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a culture that seems to assail us and find new ways to divide us on a regular basis. We confess that we are in need of saving grace and divine love working in us and through us so that we might bring you the glory and the honor that you deserve. Lord, for those watching online right now that are struggling with family members, Lord, if they claim to have a living relationship with you, I pray for them right now as my brother or sister. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the pews this morning that we would be the more humble, the more like Christ, we'd be the first to initiate the bridge building that we might win some by love. We won't do it unless you fill us with your Holy Spirit, God. That's how needy we are. Oh, God, may our homes and families and this church body and the days ahead be marked distinctly by love as we display our birthmarks proudly and humbly to the world. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen.